that while we breathe, we hope, and where we are met with cynicism and doubt, and those who tell us that we can't, we will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. Hello. You people know a lot about trucks. From This American Life in WBEZ Chicago, it's Politics and Bros. Maybe we'll start thinking about taking their press credentials away from them. What the hell is going on? Well, hello there, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters. I do hope I can say comrades and friends, and thank you so much for checking out yet another fantastic episode of Politics and Bros. Skiffering this podcast schooner and coming at you from the studios of my apartment in Old Town Alexandria. My name is Ryan Teichler, and joining me as he does from the Federal Hill neighborhood of Baltimore, Maryland, ladies and gentlemen, I present to you Michael Mon. Hello there, Michael. Hello, Ryan. Season three. The bros are back. Season three kicks off after a bit of a hiatus. Yeah, we're kind of on that Dan Carlin schedule where you never really know when we're going to drop a podcast. Right, right. (laughs) I guess it sucks in more listeners, right? The mystery of it. Tried and true method. Well, it's going to be back talking into a microphone with you. Um, I haven't seen you or talked to you in a while other than last week and the week before, but... um, that's neither here nor there. Um, so, obviously, we haven't talked or, or uh, podcasted in a while. There's a shit ton of news going on. Um, I want to start first with a local race because I'm sitting in Virginia right now. The Virginia governor's race, which is going to happen tomorrow, November 7th. So, everyone from Virginia listening to this, go vote, go vote, go vote. Um it's a hugely important race, not only for the state of Virginia, but, but nationally it could potentially be, um, a kind of tepid thumbs up to the future of the Republican party to run a a Trumpian style style campaign. Um, the polls are really close, Michael. I think this is a toss up coming in. What do you, what do you think about like just generally or the horse race of, of the campaign? So what I've looked at is like the average, the polling average has Northrum up by about three percentage points, which given the margin of error on all those polls could be anything from a blowout to a Gillespie win. So I don't think it's like quite a 50-50 toss up. I still think uh, Ralph Northrum's still the favorite, but you got to vote to to determine the outcome. So. Yeah. No, I, so the polls lately, or not really lately, because the, they've kind of converged and they've shown uh, Ed Gillespie getting a, a little bit tighter. And then today it, it, it spread out a bit with uh, well, Ralph it's done two things. 5%. The average lead for Northrum has shrunk over the past however many months, but then also the variance in the, you know, the, the, the polling differences between each sort of poll has narrowed. So it's kind of converging to a point that's a slight uh, Ralph Northam lead, I suppose. Yeah, because there's a Quinnipiac poll. I think it's Quinnipiac, but they had Northam winning by 17, which is nuts. And then there's another mm-hmm. poll that had Ed Gillespie, Enron Ed, um, winning relatively comfortably. 
So the polls were right. all over the place, but you're right. They've kind of converged a bit. Yeah. it's it's So I just find it a bit hard to believe that Northam's going to completely blow it. Well, he's Because <laughs> this is a state... To. This is a state that one year ago uh, went for Hillary Clinton. I mean, I just can't, can't imagine that in this environment somehow that has flipped back red. It, it would just be a huge shock. It, no, it, and I don't know that it would be like – And that's this I mean, why this race is so important because it like validates well, the Trumpian politics. It is and it isn't. I mean like the, these are you know local races. This is not actually a Trump referendum. This is between two candidates. And you know the environment could be very different in other states. Obviously New Jersey has an election as well. Um, it's going to be a blowout for the Democrat there. And that's also not any sort of referendum on Trump because that's more about how New Jersey is fed up with Chris Christie and his lieutenant governor's running. So it would be a huge story if Northam gets upset, but that doesn't necessarily mean or spell uh, gloom and doom in three years or even next year in the midterms. But I mean, you're we'll right. But so Virginia's kind of a purple state right now. It's voted for Obama, I believe, twice, and then voted for Hillary. Um, to right. nationally, it, it's a purple state, but it's leaning blue but it's kind of a weird state yeah it's a it's a bit, bit purpley it's becoming more re- reliably blue but so here's the the things working in their favor number one like it, clinton won i think more comfortably than obama did in virginia so it seems like it's on the at least on the presidential level it's going more blue every every election. But then also when they had the Democrat primaries and the Republican primaries where Northam won and Gillespie won, the turnout was really high on the Democrat side and really low on the Republican side. That would seem to indicate that tomorrow there would be a lower Republican turnout, but I don't know. So before I get into my crazy – like political strategist hat where I think the the Republicans are actually running a really smart campaign here in Virginia. I, I just want to like set the table for, for what this election is about. So on the, the GOP side, the Republican side, you have someone named Enron Ed Gillespie, um, <laughs> who when Trump was saying he wants to drain the swamp, um, this guy is probably the swampiest swamp who've ever swamped uh, person. He was in the Bush White House. He worked for H.W. Um, Bush, I believe. He's been a longtime political consultant, strategist. He, he lead the RNC as well or something like he that? He led the RNC for a year. But uh, after he left the uh, W. White House, he became a lobbyist for a company called Enron, Michael. Uh, oh, I'm... I remember Enron. Yeah, yeah. Well, so a, a lot of people realize or remember like the Enron scandal, but I don't think people actually realize what they were doing because we're both 32 years old, and this happened about, what, 17, 18 years ago. But anyway, Enron was this big energy commodity trading company. They had some pipelines. They are a big energy company, publicly traded, really widely held. They were cooking their books to put their liabilities and losses into shell corporations that they put offshore 
and then weren't reporting those losses to Wall Street or the SEC. And then the executives were selling off the shares of their company at the obviously overvalued price to the general public, which is fraud and insider trading. Like, so <laughs> essentially what they did was they ripped off people who wanted to buy stocks as part of their uh, retirement portfolios. Uh, there's a lot of unions who buy these stocks. Um, and so they basically cooked the book so the the executives could get really rich and the people, the poor schmucks who invested in them went busto. Um, so that's who Ed Ron Ed was, was supporting. That was his, <laughs> that was his client on Capitol Hill at the time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he's somewhat of an oh, insider. Wait, 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 wait. I'm, I'm not done with Enron Ed. This okay. is another. This is another bigger thing that he did. So Enron Ed was he was a, a consultant, a lobbyist for Enron, and maybe he didn't know they were cooking the books. Who knows, right? But what he was lobbying on Capitol Hill for was the deregulation of the energy commodity trading industry, right? that Enron was the biggest player in. When they got that law passed to deregulate this specific industry, they jacked up the rates four times. Mm -hmm. Four times. So your energy bill, if you were in California, because of Enron Ed, was four times as much as it was before he started lobbying for them. So if anyone thinks this guy's out for like, you know, a populist, hardworking, middle-class family, you know, the little guy who's forgotten, bullshit. He'd rather, he's, he's for gouging you. Correct. <laughs> he's for gouging you and making your energy, uh, your utility bills go up four times. That's what right. he's been doing. So he was a, you know, a K Street lobbyist, and in the era of Drain the Swamp, you're suggesting he's the creature from the Black Lagoon? Correct. Yes, that's He's right. The swamp thing. Yes, okay. he is the swamp thing. Yes. Okay. Well, then, what do we got on the other side? What What is uh, Ralph Northam to you? So, it's an interesting question because Ralph is basically just like a generic Democratic candidate, right? Well, he he was the lieutenant governor, he, so he's got a little correct. bit of experience. Like McAuliffe, the 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 current governor, is like. He's well-liked, but, like, Ralph Northam really doesn't make, you know, your your mesh shorts move at all. He's not really, like, <laughs> you know, he's not very inspiring. Um, he's running kind of a middle-of-the-road campaign. But at the end of the day, like, the, the question is, so... In the the current delegates, uh, the House delegates in Virginia, they have – the Republicans almost have a veto-proof majority. And McAuliffe has blocked all these bad laws that would prevent women from getting abortions and you know just deforesting everything and um, making sure working-class um, Americans wouldn't have health care. So – McAuliffe has vetoed all of these things. So that, that's why it's really important. Um, the only reason, like, 400,000 people in Virginia who are the working poor, like people who make under $40,000 a year with a, a family of four, 
actually have health care is because McAuliffe has blocked all the GOP um, House bills for the state of Virginia. So if Ralph Northam comes, I'm sorry, if, if uh, Enron Ed comes in, that's basically done and 400,000 people will, will very likely lose health care. So mm-hmm. I, I'm not like, I don't think it, uh, Ralph Northam is a great candidate. Well, but I, say, I think we have to like, you know, you have to win on the ideas here. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of like been drawing the same sort of parallels as the uh, Democratic presidential primaries, where uh, I think a lot of people voted for Hillary Clinton because they felt she was a little bit safer. And that while Bernie Sanders brought a lot of enthusiasm, there was a fear that he wasn't very electable. He's a little bit too progressive. And so in the Democratic primaries for the Virginia gubernatorial race, Tom Perriello kind of had that grassroots movement, enthusiasm. People really like wanted to vote for this guy. Now, he didn't win because Northam kind of fits the bill as the more electable person in the eyes of, I guess, the average Democratic voter or maybe the party that gets more support. But then when it comes time to this election, is this bland <laughs> candidate – actually more electable than the one that was drawing all this enthusiasm. And so we still haven't had a sort of like case study for the grassroots progressive on these big sort of stages. I think on maybe lower levels we have, but I'd like to see, <laughs> I, just, I voted for I'd like to see the, pro- <laughs> yeah, I'd like to see the progressive, you know, if you're right, then he would get his teeth stomped in by Enron Ed running his racist campaign but I kind of think that there may be something behind running a, a candidate people like and like want to go out and support. But call me crazy. No, I, I, I agree with you 100 percent. And I want to touch on um, to go back to Enron Ed here. And I was texting with you and, and Mudman a little bit ago. And so Enron Ed is the swampiest swamp who've ever swamped. Um, he is the most insider Washington candidate, but he's re- he's running a very Trumpian campaign, which has all the racist dog whistles you you could imagine. But v- Virginia um, politically is a very weird state. So there's three main population centers: it's Northern Virginia, Richmond, and the Tidewater area, which is like Virginia Beach, etc. And then the rest is really, really rural. Mm-hmm. So the weird thing, so democratically, you have to get a vote out in these three places as well as Charlottesville and, and to a lesser extent Roanoke. And then you could actually win it because it's you know the most of the population. What, Ed, what Enron Ed seems to be doing is a very Trumpian campaign to bring non-voters, the, the people who typically don't vote, who are rural voters out to the polls, but you can't just win an election just on that based on the, you know, the demographic split of Virginia. So you have to tie these two things together, right? You have to be able to get a message that pulls from these rural voters, but can also peel away and, um, you know, jazz up these voters from the, the more populous areas to actually go out to the polls. So his MS-13 ad, I think, is absolutely brilliant. So 
so uh, I, I, I'm sure you've seen the ad, right? He was he was claiming that uh, Ralph Northam passed some laws that gave legal air cover to the MS-13 gang, which is complete bullshit, mind you. Like, mm-hmm. like that, there are no sanctuary cities in Virginia. Ralph Northam didn't do anything to help these gangs. It's just a complete lie. But I think it's very smart for this reason. One is Northern Virginia voters will have heard of MS-13. And if oh, they're yeah. Republican voters, they very well may, may be low-information Fox News viewers. So all they'll hear is, oh, this guy's for MS-13? I don't like him. And then the rural voters will think the same thing because they won't know anything about MS-13, but at least they'll understand that they're brown. <laughs> right. And they'll say, well, this guy, oh, my God, we don't even want them, these people in our country, let alone our state. And this Ralph Northam guy let them in. Mm-hmm. You know, they took our jobs uh, or they take it over our country. So it plays uh, to a low information voter in North in Northern Virginia, which is by far the uh, highest concentration of population in Virginia. And also plays to these rural voters that uh, that uh, Enron Ed needs to turn out. I think it's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant um, campaign ad. But it just goes to show the depth that that this the Republican Party will go to because it's all based on a fucking lie. Right, right. Yeah, I mean you're right. Like MS-13 has been a sort of menacing storyline in Northern Virginia suburbs for at least 20 years like i mean i remember being back in high school and there were incidents in like Bryn Mawr. so i think like voters will are familiar it's just a question of whether they're willing to see the lie for what it is i don't know but no the lie is that the whole ad is a lie <laughs> right no the lie is that northrum is somehow pro ms13 <laughs> right right <laughs> which she is not is bullshit like, right right yeah it's just, I, I, it's just scaring people without any sort of, like, depth behind it. Like, my worry you know. is that uh, you know, Fox News and the um, the, the Republican right, because, like, the conservative movement is basically dead right now. Um, you know, it's just an echo chamber of lies compounded on lies compounded on lies. Mm-hmm. So these people might not know that they're being lied to. Well, yeah, I guess, like, nationally, like, if this if, – if he pulls off the upset, this is going to be part of the playbook for every election going forward, probably. And that's – this is kind of like, uh, you know, Jeff Flake just bowed out and announced his retirement from the Senate, and he sort of implied, like, he wasn't willing to run these Trumpian types of can- uh, campaigns. Like, if he was – he was going to get primaried, and he, he kind of uh, realized this was the only way forward, and – for him, you know, he wanted to just be like a conservative Republican, I guess, whatever they used to be. But that's not what the party is anymore. And so, if, you know, Enron Ed wins with this sort of style. That's going to be the only way they're going to try to run next year, I think. No, and that's why I think it's so important because Bannon is saying the same thing right now, too. And so is Corey Stewart, the guy who primaried Enron Ed, and he almost won running on a Bannon Trump-esque uh, platform, and then Enron Ed just—he won the primary and just took over the same talking points of that that nationalistic far right platform. Yeah. All right. Well, 
think we've we've covered Virginia as much as I want to. Yeah, as a, no, Baltimore, I, I, as a Baltimore resident. Well, yeah, you're not in Virginia. I can keep going, but um, I've more or less shot my bolt. Um, so where do you want to go now? There, there's a lot of the news. Um, Bob Mueller's investigation. Republicans uh, presented from the House their tax bill. Um, which one do you want to tackle next? Uh, let's talk about the the uh, special investigation first. Oh, uh, Bobby, Bobby Mueller. Oh. Um, you want me to to set it up? You set the table for us here, Michael. Well, I mean, the the big news is that we've got indictments from uh, for his uh, campaign chairman Paul Manafort and his assistant assistant Robert Gates, his lawyer or whatever, and then George Papadopoulos. Papadopoulos. Energy and foreign policy expert Papadopoulos pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI, and in his affidavit, kind of, uh, you know, seems to have implied that he had been, you know, had or thought he had connections to Russians, and was willing to get these sorts of emails that they had uh, hacked from John Podesta, and so this is uh, his testimony or whatever. Um, is linked to that foreign policy meeting that Trump, you know, Instagrammed where they're all in a round table and supposedly Jeff Sessions vehemently opposed anyone pursuing this any, any further. And that's all great for Jeff Sessions, but that's not what he testified for or in front of Congress. So yeah, that, that he might've purged himself um, to go back to Papadopoulos. And I, I love that you picked this one next because like I've been, dying to say that name into a microphone. <laughs> um, but I'm not a lawyer. You're not a lawyer. But let me give everyone listening a bit of legal advice. If the FBI is questioning you about your role in an organization or an entity that is under FBI investigation, get a lawyer before you say <laughs> anything. Because that lawyer will tell you, do not lie, do not lie, do not lie. Oh, Jesus Christ, whatever you do, do not lie. So, so Papadopoulos was voluntarily, gave a voluntary interview with uh, the FBI, right? So he, he could have he left at any time. He couldn't, you know, he doesn't have to incriminate himself, but he shows up without a lawyer and he lies to the FBI. How but like, how stupid do you have to be to do this? And the next day, he deleted like his Facebook, deleted <laughs> deleted his social media presence. Obviously, would draw some sort of uh, red flags from the FBI. So, but the thing is, like Trump and others uh, are trying to paint him as this low-level coffee boy. He was just a volunteer on the campaign. But that's not at all the story they were telling during the campaign. When Donald Trump met with the Washington Post to discuss his uh, team of uh, foreign policy advisors, he name-dropped George Papadopoulos. I can't even get the name out right. So at the time during the campaign and when this was going on, he thought highly of, of him. And granted, the Washington Post kind of had to do a quick Google because no one had heard of him and couldn't find any sort of policy papers or, or any connection to the man. But in the present term, Trump thought highly of this person. And now he's pretending like he, he was, you know, 
he wasn't really on the campaign at all. Well, also, and this I, this idea that they're volunteers, it's like they're all volunteers. Well, <laughs> Manafort, yeah, Manafort wasn't getting paid either. Yeah. I mean, like, it's it's. I mean, so that doesn't really hold any water. No, and, and uh, there's a Greek newspaper today that reported that Papadopoulos had had dinner with Trump on a prior occasion, other than like the one time Trump claims they've met. That that picture that's you know floating around Instagram. And uh, Papadopoulos had met with the foreign minister of Greece and either the president or the prime minister bragging about, you know, his connections to the campaign. And apparently that was on the campaign's dime as well. So he was a he was a you know unpaid uh, volunteer, but apparently they were paying for his travel. Yeah. All right. So let me get back to the, the, the Jeff Sessions. Jeff Sessions is now misled Congress once about his his personal connections to Russia because he had these conversations with um, the ambassador. And so he had to go back in front of Congress and and, uh, revise his statements. And in those, he says, you know, no one from the campaign, to his knowledge, had any sort of uh, meetings or connections with Russia. And now the stories are coming out where he personally vehemently told them not to pursue this any further. It might leak, yada, yada, yada. He's trying to get painted as the uh, the responsible American in the room saying you can't do this. But that also contradicts his sworn testimony in front of Congress. Now, I got this theory. <laughs> I got this theory that somehow Jeff Sessions, I, I believe he was actually vehemently opposed to George Papadopoulos setting up this meeting because I think he actually he, he's a believer in this Trump agenda and he really wanted to get into power to enact the Jeff Sessions agenda, which he's doing at the Department of Justice. So I think at the time he was like a relatively decent American within that campaign and was opposed to those sorts of like colluding with the Russians but now that he's in power, he's unwilling to relinquish it because he's finally gotten his chance to, you know, to prosecute minorities. <laughs> right, right, yeah. So he's, he's got to lie to keep the House of Cards uh, standing tall. That's my theory, at least. <laughs> no, I actually like the theory. And he was one of the few grown-ups in the room uh, of the, the entire uh, presidential campaign of Donald Trump. I mean, they had a, right. a bunch of amateurs. It, and Paul Manifer, think about what who was in he literally got indicted for conspiracy against the United States while he was the campaign manager of Donald Trump. Right, yeah. I mean, like, Sessions is probably the least shady of all of them. And he's still shady. But he wants to keep it that way. Like, he wants to keep his job. He wants to be able to do these reforms within the DOJ that, you know, we don't like, but he believes in, certainly. He's he's probably becoming the most successful Trumpian force within the Trump administration. Yeah, he's... Right. That, he's an absolute prick. Um, so we didn't even touch on Manafort. So like, they, literally, the campaign chairman at the time was charged with a conspiracy against the United States. Um, he didn't disclose a shit ton of money he made from the Ukraine and all of his other uh, foreign um, lobbying contracts, which is illegal. And it's it's. We're getting now very close to the charge of money laundering and 
a, a lot of other bad shit. Like Paul Manafort's a, a bad dude. Yeah. Oh yeah. But um, let's let's skip ahead. Like, there's not a whole lot to debate about is whether Paul Manafort's a good guy or a bad guy. Um, so let's skip ahead real quick to uh, <laughs> Paul Ryan and his uh, his wonky self tax plan that he released earlier this week. Uh, essentially what it does is they say it's supposed to be a tax cut for everyone, especially the middle class, but they reduce the corporate tax rate from 35% to 20%, and the math just doesn't add up. So they're doing a lot of sleight of hand to make it look like it's a tax break for middle-income families when really it's a tax raise. Right. So there's a couple things. Like one, they passed basically a budget in the house that gave them, like, that allowed them to ha- to add 1.5 trillion dollars worth of debt over the next 10 years. So the deficit would grow. And so they're working under that assumption to build in these tax cuts for corporations and you know repealing the estate tax and to some extent some uh, individual tax tax benefits. So they're basically they're we're, we're going to borrow money to give it to corporations and to individuals, but the corporate tax cuts are permanent in this plan. Right. The tax benefits for individuals phase out over time, and I think like the Paul Ryan average household of four that'll see what did he say like. Eleven hundred eighty-two dollars yeah, in tax close, relief. Yeah, it's something like close to like twelve thousand. By bucks. by years by year six, it's a tax increase. By year ten, it's like four hundred eighty dollars per person in the household compared to uh, eighteen thousand dollars worth of debt per per capita. And that's partly because they're going to change the measure of inflation for the tax brackets. Yeah, but they're so not going to do that for uh, Medicaid. Did you did you notice that little little <laughs> ditty in the tax? No, 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 I haven't. But, but I mean, I'm just like fundamentally, I'm opposed to just borrowing money to give tax cuts to wealthy people. Like, if you're going to borrow money, that should be to build. Like, like our our roads are outdated. You know, it's it's affecting our economy because people can't get from point A to point B. Or there's this new technology. We need to borrow money to build it. That'll you know boost the economy. We don't just borrow money to give it back to rich people. Right. (laughs) Like, it doesn't make any sense. No, but weirdly enough, this isn't, like, the craziest tax plan I've ever seen from Republicans. Um, So if they went from, like, a 35% tax rate to, like, say, a a 28% or 30% tax rate for corporations, and then they, like, pass down some of the, you know, the the lower tax bracket uh, cuts and and reduce some of the loopholes, that's not that crazy. Well, the numbers just just don't add up. Oh, and and, and I, I'm sure you're going to think about this, but like the um, the mortgage deduction rate on on homes over five hundred thousand, that's actually not a terrible tax, but at five hundred thousand, it seems a bit low to me. Yeah, I mean that that seems okay because <laughs> obviously. Someone that has a, a mortgage over five hundred thousand would probably be on the wealthier end of the spectrum, so that would be a li- little bit more of a progressive 
sort of change. The issue with the corporate tax rate, there's nothing inherently wrong with reducing the corporate tax rate from 35% to 20%. It, what I have the problem with is if you, if you reduce that, but then you don't change capital gains taxes at all, you're just blowing a hole in the deficit. I mean, so what I'm saying is like when you give corporations more money, that means every individual shareholder in that company is going to be worth more like on day one. Right. So you could you could just say, all right, we're not going to tax corporations at all, but you're going to have to treat capital gains tax like income tax. If you if you earn over four hundred fifty thousand dollars a year in just capital gains, okay, we're going to tax you at the same bracket that we do salaries and income. That's that would be a more equitable system. Instead, they're maintaining a lower effective tax rate for capital gains. They're lowering the the corporate rate which means anyone that makes their income through these sorts of uh, investments are just going to see benefits from that. But, and, and, and then like the other thing is like, so someone like me, like who I, I would actually slightly see a tax break here, but I would still owe more money than the, the 20% tax rate. So it, every person well, in my situation would just incorporate the, themselves as an LLC and pay a lower rate. <laughs> Obviously, not everyone can do that, but yeah, there. I mean, there's definitely I mean, it's some. It's not that hard. Like the the, the pass through income, right. all that kind of stuff. There's there's definitely loopholes that are going to have unintended consequences. But the problem also with just just debt financing these sorts of tax breaks is that in the long run that hurts everyone through either borrowing costs, inflation. So it makes like everything you buy more expensive. So if you're not like the net best winner out of this borrowing money to give back to people, you're the big loser. And that's probably going to be us. <laughs> yeah, and the other so I, don't, I don't know that you you should start counting all your chickens yet. No, no. Like, <laughs> I think I would my taxes would go down up front, but I think I'd I'd be a net big loser. Um the income i mean i'm sorry the um mortgage deduction uh tax is a very very popular tax especially for middle income uh families and it used to be at a million bucks and, and now they're proposing to move it down to 500,000 which would essentially make all houses over x amount of dollars worth more, worth less because you couldn't deduct the income, well, the, uh, I mean, the uh, interest against that loan. So it, well, there's, two, it hurt there's two things. That, that sucks. Basically, if, if you have a mortgage right now, you're probably itemizing your deductions and you're including, including your mortgage interest for the year as a deductible expense against your income. And you're doing that instead of doing the standard deduction. Now, they're not only just eliminating your ability to deduct interest on a mortgage above $500,000, they're eliminating your ability to deduct your state and local taxes. So they're making it less likely that anyone – and they're also doubling the standard deduction itself. So it's, it's becoming less likely that as many people will be itemizing these deductions. So they're doing that in, in this sort of like 
you know, Paul Ryan holds up his postcard and says, you use the standard deduction. You can do all your taxes on a postcard. It doesn't make any sense. Everyone e-files anyways. I don't know why we need postcards. But it's not like the, the problem isn't really that it's not simple enough. It's that people actually like having these itemized deductions because <laughs> right, that, that lowers their <laughs> tax break. The problem wasn't this is too complicated. Pe- people want to be able to lower their taxable income. So just getting rid of that, it, you know, people will be upset, I think. Well, I, I know the, the guys from Podsafe and, and all the other progressive podcasts have said this. Like, it really screws over the uh, Democratic you know, bastion. Because you know houses in in Northern Virginia or New York City or San Francisco or or, or what have you, uh, you know, progressive areas are worth more than five hundred thousand dollars typically. Well, in in the, the the state tax in places higher, like exactly. Maryland and New York and California are higher, so it's going to shift that burden or or shift the income towards more conservative states. There's, there's also consequences to that. I mean, like the state governments right now are not funded very well across the board. And so if you start reducing the uh, revenue base in states like New York or New Jersey or Maryland or places like that by incentivizing wealthy people to maybe move out of state or maybe not, you know. Or, or rent or, or something. Yeah, I mean, it. <laughs> There's going to be some problems I'm, I'm forecasting here. Yeah, no, I, I I don't think it's a good tax bill, but I've seen worse from the mind of Paul Ryan. <laughs> That's the yeah. <laughs> it's another example of them basically writing a corporate tax cut plan and selling it as a middle income, middle class income tax cut, which doesn't make sense. If you if you really believed in a middle class income tax cut, you could just write that, <laughs> right? <laughs> Without all the corporate stuff, I don't know. And the weird thing is, they're so. holding like the highest income bracket at the thirty nine point six rate, just so they can say like, oh no, you know, we're, we're not, you know, we're not lowering taxes on the one percent, but they're re- lowering the taxes on like the corporation side, which more than likely the 1% own or they have access to make themselves a corporation. Yeah. Well, as it's currently written, I don't foresee that it would be able to pass Senate rules. So we'll have to address this again when, when they start to rewrite the bill under Mitch McConnell's careful guidance. God. He's not as smart as everyone thinks he is. So, it's it, this is going to fall apart because Ryan, who's supposed to be like you know, the wonderkin of the Republican Party, the the tax policy wonderkin, he he didn't make a bill that added up. He cannot do it under Senate rules. No. Yeah, and if if they really wanted a, a middle class income tax cut, they could work with Democrats on that. So. Yeah, they could actually raise the uh, the deferred uh, income. <laughs> tax loophole Mm -hmm. they could change that there's a lot of ways they could do it but uh yeah you're right they're not gonna do it but um all right Right. michael let's get the fuck out of here um yep 
remember, everyone, we're recording this on November 6th, 2017. November 7th is the Republican gubernatorial election. Please, please, please vote. This is going to be a very, very close race. Everyone, it, it, it comes down to turnout. So please tell your friends, tell everyone you can, vote for Ralph Northam. Do not vote for Enron Ed. Tell everybody you can you have to get out of the polls. This is good to come down to the wire. So if you're listening to this on uh, Wednesday, it's too late. And congratulations, Ed Gillespie. <laughs> God, I hope not. All right. Well, for Big Tyke here in Old Town Alexandria and Mike Mon there in the Federal Hill neighborhood of Baltimore, Maryland, we'll see you next time. But until then, bye-bye.